Lord, we give you the things in our heart, sins, Lord, that we've committed or cares. We give them to you so that we can come before you, hear your word, and joyfully enter your presence in a little bit in praise and worship. We commit ourselves and our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone a few weeks ago compared one of the teachings to having baked a cake and iced it. So it was a good thing. It was something that was complete, and, and I was thrilled to hear that on one hand. Uh, on the other, Sam, sometimes when you teach, it's uh, less getting a cake uh, out and iced. It's uh, If you just get the ingredients out on the table, you're doing well, and that's a little bit more of what we'll be doing today. I confess in preparing this passage, <clears throat> I almost punted late in the week because I wasn't sure how I was going to uh, address this, the issues in the passage this morning. Uh, but we're going to go through it anyway, and I think I've got a couple handles that will be helpful. You know, if you, when you, not if you, but if you read your Bible, you will come to passages that are difficult to understand, and that's okay. Uh, if you find them difficult, it's probably because they they are difficult. Peter, when he talks about Paul's writings in Second Peter, he says that in Paul's epistles, there were things that were difficult to understand. He doesn't make any bones about it. And you know, on one hand, Scripture is very blunt and simple related to some things. And on other things, there are things that we have to scratch our head and study and work and pray about to gain some decent sense of understanding, which is okay. You know, the Bible, again, on one hand, very, very simple, but on the other, it's as profound and complex as anything. And it requires sometimes all of our intellectual and academic efforts to come to grips with things, and that's okay. So if something's difficult, don't just write it off. Pray about it. Ask God to give you understanding. Your, his Spirit's with all those who know him to give understanding. And then give a little effort, put a little work into understanding what it says. If you remember last week, we looked at the first half of the letter to the church at Sardis. And you remember geographically, Sardis is just in from the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Turkey's been in the news a lot because of the war recently. Sardis in southeast from the other churches we'd looked at. Summing up briefly that first half. You remember Jesus says, guys, you look like a church that's alive. You have a name or a reputation for being alive, but really you're dead. You're asleep at the wheel. For all practical purposes, you're dead. And his call to them was, wake up. Wake up. You've been asleep. It's time to wake up. We said that they're being asleep. This wasn't a minor infraction. This was a betrayal of a sovereign, divine trust given them. And that their sleep was no minor infraction. This was a serious, serious issue. They had lain down on the job. They who were called to be vigilant had lain down on the job. And we said primarily that looked like it was talking about that they had not kept the things they'd received. Probably, and we talked about the Church of the Reformation period being a reflection of this letter, that it was a time when the gospel had been forgotten and it wasn't going out. And there was religious activity, but there wasn't spiritual life. And so Jesus had said, wake up, become alert, and get back and strengthen the things that remain. If you remember the letter to Thyatira, a lot of people in that church had followed that wicked woman Jezebel. Remember she gave Jezebel a bad name. For all history, Jezebel, they'd followed her in idolatry and immorality. But then you remember Jesus turns around and says, but some of you haven't. And then he addresses them. That's the same thing that goes on in this letter to Sardis. They hadn't all fallen asleep. 
And it's that other part of the church that Jesus is going to address this morning. We'll start at verse 4. He says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white because or for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. We'll stop there in the middle of verse 5. Jesus says, There are a few in Sardis. Are you there? No. Revelation 3. Sorry, Revelation 3 at verse 4. You bet. Thank you. You bet. He says there's a few that haven't soiled your garments. And there's several things we need to address in these verses. But the first is, it's interesting that he's talking to a whole church. When he's talking to those who are doing right, he says there's just a few of you. There's just a few. In this hypocritical religious group, void almost entirely of life, those who actually had stayed aware and alert and alive, those who had kept the trust, they were just a few. And this is a great reminder to you and I, you know, if you live your life based on what other people around you are doing, you're in trouble. You remember if you did something stupid as a kid? None of the kids in here would do this. But if you did something stupid as a kid... And your parents say, why did you do that? And you say, well, everyone else was doing it. You know, how much slack did that cut you? Not much. Because your parents say, that doesn't matter. There's just a few in Sardis. But you remember in Shakespeare, Hamlet, there's a few, but those few are happy. We few, we happy few who are part of what was going on here today. That's the thought here too. Henry V, sorry about that. Uh, But there's just a few. It's a great reminder. Don't follow the crowd. The crowd will often, in fact, most often, lead you astray. Don't follow the crowd. Your allegiance is not to the crowd. It's to the Lord of the church. So there's only a few. When he says there's a few there who have not soiled their garments, Jesus introduces this, this graphic for us. It's something that helps us visualize things. You haven't soiled your garments. You know, generally in the scriptures, if you're talking about getting dirty, most of the time it's about immorality. And if you look at the letters to the churches that have preceded this, soiling or becoming spiritually dirty would go along with idolatry and immorality. Probably not the case here. Uh, You know, religious hypocrites, um, if, if I'm a religious hypocrite, I avoid the gross sins because I sin in all the other little ways. But I avoid the appearance of evil through this kind of immorality. And that's probably what these guys had done. It doesn't mean they were without sin. It just meant that they thought too highly of themselves to perform certain kinds of sin. They were just religious hypocrites and spiritually dead. Not a good thing. But anyway, probably not immorality, the issue here related to soiling their garments. This is probably more the thought. Jesus says to you guys who are supposed to be aware, alert, and alive, walking along the road of life, In the garments I've provided you, you've lain down in the dust and the dirt of the road to take your ease, to betray the sacred trust I gave you. You've lain down on the soil and the dirt, and you've gotten dirty. That's probably more the thought. Not immorality, just turning off all the things that had to do with real life by spiritually lying down on the job, by taking their ease, going to sleep, dead for all practical purposes. So Jesus says, in Sardis, there's a few of you that you didn't lie down 
and get your robes dirty. You didn't soil your, your clothing. It's a good thing. He says, they will, those who have stayed clean, they'll walk with me in white for they're worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. This thought of you've got these white garments. On one hand, it's future tense. I'm going to give you white garments. On another hand, it's present. You had clean clothes on, Jesus says, and you got them dirty. When I was a kid, and this isn't true today, but when I was a kid, I had to dress up to go to Mass on Sunday morning. I had to put on my nice little suit, the little coat I hated, and the little bow tie when I was a kid, and the white shirt. And if I was dressed up for Sunday, I could not go jump in the mud puddles. The dress I was in meant that I had to conform to a certain standard. The clothing I was given meant that some things simply were excluded as an option. Johnny's dressed for church. He doesn't go play in the mud. These guys were given Sunday best, as it were. They were given white garments to wear. And the white garments were Christ's own righteousness. And I'll talk about this here in just a second. A couple other verses that talk about this. They were given clean clothing. And Jesus says, you took the clean clothes that I gave you and you got them all dirty, lying down in the dust of the road, spiritually going to sleep. This clean clothing that you'll see exemplified throughout the New Testament especially is the righteousness Christ himself gives us. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Paul says, By his doing, by God the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And he has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Christ is our righteousness. Spiritually, the white garments you and I wear, we can't see them with our eyes, but they're there nonetheless. Spiritually, it is Christ's own righteousness made over to you and I. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For you and I, sinners without righteousness, God the Father says, because of the righteousness of my Son, I impute his right standing to you. I credit you with his righteousness. And the visual God gives us for that is white, sparkling white garment or clothing. That's what the Christians in Sardis had been given by God. Sparkling white clothing. There's a great, great passage that goes right along with this in the uh, prophetic book of Zechariah. And Zechariah sees in heaven, in the courts of heaven, the high priest Joshua is standing there. It's not a pleasant scene, though, initially, because there's a problem. Standing next to Joshua, this is the high priest of Israel. This is, if, he, if there's anyone righteous, right, it's him. And he's standing before God in heaven. The trouble is Satan is next to him, and he's accusing him. And you know what? He, the accusations are probably all true. He's accusing Joshua of sin before God in heaven. And the other problem is that Zechariah looks on and Joshua's got another problem because you see, the clothing he's wearing, they're rags. They're filthy. Here's this filthy high priest standing before a holy God being accused by Satan, the accuser of the brethren. 
But it's great because God takes the festal robe and he puts it on Joshua. And Zechariah in his exuberance, he loves this because he knows he's okay now. He says, and put a turban on his head, Lord. And he does. Seeing this guy who was standing before God in his own righteousness, filthy rags, God covers him with a clean festal robe. You remember in the parables in the, the Gospels, when the folks are invited to the wedding feast, what do you have to have if you go into the wedding feast? You've got to have the right clothing. And the guy who tries to come in in his own filthy rags doesn't stay. He's booted out. That's the same thought here. Joshua is clothed with the appropriate garments by God's doing, and then he's okay. Then he's fit for heaven. He doesn't provide the clothing. God does. And that's the thought here. Jesus is saying to these folks in Sardis, guys, I clothed you with my own righteousness, my own clean, sparkling garments, and you've taken that and you've thrown it down in the dirt as you've betrayed my sacred trust. Not a good thing. These guys in Sardis, Jesus says, you know what? You've kept your garments clean. We don't provide the clean garments. God does. But then he says, guys, walk in a way that you keep your garments clean. Mike, your Sunday tie's on. You don't go jump in the mud. You don't lie down in the dirt. This gets on with this second thought that he says they are worthy. They're going to walk with me in white because they're worthy. I'm going to provide these white garments for them in heaven. They're going to be with me because they're worthy. This term worthy is interesting. I think when we read this or hear this, it's probably uh, it's misleading. Uh, not intentionally so, but the word here does not mean they are worth something. In the sense that we say, uh, I don't know, a picture is worthy or something. That means it has inherent value. That's not the thought. The Greek term for worthy here has the thought of it is in balance. It is in equilibrium. It is appropriate. It's like scales. That's the thought. So Jesus says, guys, to you who receive my righteousness through faith and salvation and have kept the faith, as it were, by walking, staying awake, not lying down in the dust of the road, it is appropriate that in heaven I clothe you eternally with these white garments that will become badges of honor in which you'll walk with me. It's worthy, it's appropriate, it's fitting. You embraced my salvation, my righteousness. You walked in a way that reflected that high calling. So in heaven, I'm going to give you these sparkling white raiments that you'll walk in with me. It's appropriate. It's equal. You're worthy of it. It's this reward. Uh, in Ephesians, uh, Paul, uh, Paul in most of his epistles, he gives you all this doctrine first. And then he gives you the application. And Ephesians, one of the highest and deepest books in the New Testament as far as doctrine and theology, he takes three chapters to talk about the grace of God to us, election, the God breaking down barriers between man and him. He gives you this great stuff. And he gets to chapter 4 and he says, now in light of all this that God has done on your behalf, he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. It's the same Greek term. Walk in a way that's appropriate to what God has done on your behalf. Walk in a way that reflects the calling Jesus Christ has called you to. Walk 
worthy of the calling. Walk in a way that reflects what he's done for you. Same word, same thought. So to this group in Sardis, Jesus says, guys, you've accepted my righteousness and you've walked in an appropriate way. It's appropriate for me in heaven to reward you and to give you eternally these white robes reflecting my righteousness and your faith. You're worthy. It's appropriate. This is a good thing. This was a reward. Uh, let's move on to the second half of verse 5. Frankly, this is the troublesome portion. Uh, and we'll talk through this a little bit. Uh, Jesus says the second half of this, he said, you're going to walk with me in white. You're worthy. Good thing. Positive thing. He says in verse 5b, And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus says, And I will not erase his name from the book of life. I find this interesting, almost without exception. If you talk to someone who reads this verse, what they hear is, God's going to erase my name from the book of life. God might erase my name from the book of life. Will God erase my name? from the book of life. Uh, Say several things about this verse. First, remember that when Jesus says this, he is speaking to people that he is rewarding, that he's pleased with. And when we hear this verse, I will not erase his name from the book of life, this is a positive, and we need to hear a positive. Jesus says, you won't be erased from the book of life. This is a good thing. It's a positive. The second thing is, you know that you can state, and I don't know how often you or I speak this way, you can state a positive by negating a negative. Say that again. You can state a positive by negating a negative. The math majors know a negative times a negative equals a positive. You can state a positive by negating a negative. And that's, this is a, it's a phrase, it's a figure of speech. Jesus is stating a positive. He says, I won't blot you out. That means your name remains in the book. If I say, and we'll look at a verse here in a second, I'll never send you away, that means you'll always be with me. If Jesus says, they shall never perish, it's not about perishing, that's about life. They have eternal life. That's the thought here. This isn't a negative. We don't want to hear a negative. He's negating a negative. That means a positive. Your name is in the book of life, and it's going to stay there. Related to this book of life, this phrase does raise issues, doesn't it? It raises question marks. What does it mean? Whose name gets erased out of the book of life? What's the book of life? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let me give you a couple other passages that talk about this. The first is in Exodus 32, and this passage is after Israel makes the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain getting the law that Israel has already agreed to follow. And of course, before Moses comes down, they make the calf. They party like the pagans all around them. Moses comes down, sees the great sin. He returns to God and he says, Lord, indeed, your people have sinned grievously. And he asks God to forgive them. And he says in Exodus 32, 32, but now if you will forgive their sin. And if not... Please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Moses says, Lord, if it would make any difference to Israel, remove me from your book. It doesn't say the book of life, but the thought seems to be the same. Lord, if it would allow you to forgive these people, 
curse me instead. Remove my name from the book of life if it means they could be restored. The passage doesn't say God can, would, or could, in a sense, remove his name. But this is a reference where Moses is saying, remove me from the book, Lord, if it would save Israel. You've got the same thought without the reference to the book of life in Romans 9 when Paul says, related to the Jews of his day, that in large part they had rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. And he said that he could wish himself accursed, cut off from God, if it meant that his fellow Jews would be saved. It doesn't say God could or would, but their heart is God's heart. God who does cut himself off, Jesus cut off from the Father so that others could be forgiven. That's the thought. But both of those contexts, the same thing. There's this book of life. And Lord, if it would make a difference, blot me out, remove my name. In Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15, same thought, same phrase used about a book of life. This passage in Revelation 20 is called the Great White Throne Judgment. And the scene is that those who are dead, it doesn't just mean they died, it means they're spiritually dead. Those who have no life in Christ, they're all raised for this final judgment. Christians are not here. They're not standing before this throne. No one who's saved is standing before this throne. In Revelation 20, verse 12, John says, I saw the dead. This qualifies where they're at. They're spiritually dead. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Two things here. Everyone before the throne, they're not saved. They're dead. When it says books were open, this appears to be the scene. God is going to judge them. Just as Christians are going to be judged for their works on the earth, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, You'll be judged not related to heaven and hell, but your works. See, God wants to reward you. So Paul compares it to a fire. The works of your life, if you've trusted in Christ, you're going to stand before Christ. He reviews it. It's like a fire. The things that weren't done for him, they're like wood and straw. They get burned up. What's left was real work, real faithfulness done for Christ. That gets rewarded. And there will be varying degrees of reward in heaven. Conversely, those who aren't saved, and those who are in hell, hell is not an equal place. Because the Gospels say that some will be, as it were, they will experience more stripes. You remember in the day in the New Testament was written, whipping, scourging, was the punishment of the day. And so the New Testament trades on that thought, and it says that in hell there are varying degrees of punishment, just as there are varying degrees of reward in heaven. So these folks, these spiritually dead who stand before this great white throne with King Jesus being the judge, these books reflect the works of their life. And you and I know nice people who reject Jesus as Savior, but they live relatively moral lives. Rejecting Jesus as Savior leaves you in hell. He's the only way to salvation. Leaves you in hell. But those who have lived relatively moral lives, so to speak, receive fewer stripes in hell. Those, when these books are open and the books reflect lives that were given up, um, I mean, think of anyone you want. The easy ones are people like Mao, 
Stalin, Hitler, and Saddam Hussein. But lots of people, very ungodly, violent lives, treacherous lives, these books reflect that. And it's these books that reflect the degree of punishment that they'll receive. Everyone in hell is cut off from Jesus and all life and all light and all goodness. But there's varying degrees of punishment. But also, at verse 15, God also opens the book of life. And he opens it to show them that their name is not there. Their name is not there. The absence of their name is proof that they do not belong in heaven. Although, this seems to be the thought, all those who know Christ, whether it's in the past, right now, or in the future, all those who trust Christ, their names are in the book. And it's not as if, it's not magical. It's not that uh, somehow arbitrarily in heaven your name was written and then it was erased or something. It's just that uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy, God knows all those who are his. That's the thought. And so this is a graphic illustration that those who are not saved, who who have rejected God's means of salvation, that white clothing of his righteousness, their name's not there. They're not saved. They won't be in heaven. To those who've trusted Christ, he wants them to know that to say your name won't be erased is a positive. Most Christians struggle with this thought, can I be lost? If I trusted Christ, if I put my faith in him to save me, can I sin a sin? Can I do something that will remove me from that salvation? Can my name ever be blotted out of the book of life? One of the principles you want to follow when you're reading Scripture, and especially if you're developing a teaching or, or a theology along this line or any other, always go to the clearest passage of Scripture to determine what the Scripture states about any particular thing. Related to salvation, let me read you three verses from this same author, John, out of his Gospel. In John 6.37, John quotes Jesus and says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus negates a negative to state a positive. Those who come to me, they're with me forever. Listen to John 10, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says again, of those who trust him, of those who believe him. Believe is the key term in John's gospel. He says, of them, I will give them eternal life. If that's all he said, that would be enough. I give them eternal life. Life that goes on, remember God is life. To to be in fellowship with him is to know life, to be in life. I give them eternal life. That would be enough. I give them eternal life, life without end, life forever. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. They'll never die. This is like saying, and their name won't be blotted out. This is a positive. Eternal life. And they'll never perish. And he could have stopped there, but he goes on. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The one who comes to me, I won't cast out. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. And they're safe in my hand. The one who says this is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. If he says you're in his hand and you're safe, you know what? You're safe. 
He could have stopped there, but he doesn't. He says, and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I don't know how much more clear Jesus could be. He's trying to tell them and us that for anyone who trusts in him, if you're looking to Jesus for your righteousness, he says, guys, eternal life, never perish. Safe in my hand, safe in the Father's hand. If you trust Christ, you're saved. You don't have to worry about that for the rest of your life. The hunts are adopting two little babies. You know what? They are legally going to give them their name. They make them members of their family. The hunts could say these same words to these babies with the same thought. Guys, you have become members of our family. You will never be anything other than a hunt. You know if you're a parent, and you know if you're children, children don't always obey. Children don't always honor their parents. Sometimes children behave in a way that doesn't fit their calling. You know what? They're still their parents' children. And if you trust Christ for salvation, this is not a license to sin, guys. But I'm telling you, I don't care what you do. I don't care how long you live, how short you live, how faithful you are, how unfaithful you are. A person who's come to know Jesus Christ for salvation is saved forever, period. Second Timothy does have an interesting passage, and it says, if we deny him, he'll deny us. Doesn't mean salvation. But regarding rewards, Jesus wants to reward you. And you know what? If you live in a, in a, in a way in this life that he can't, he's not going to give you rewards. You're going to be saved. You're going to be in heaven, and that's great. But he wants to reward you. That same passage in 2 Timothy, I believe it's chapter 3, says, but you know what? He's not going to, if you deny him, he'll deny you. That's regarding rewards. But it says he cannot deny himself. If you come to know Jesus in salvation and you live a wretched life through the end of your days and die, Jesus cannot deny himself. You're still saved. You're in his hand and you're in the Father's hand and you're going to heaven. He's just not going to reward you the way he would like to. So, if your name's in the book, it's there. You're safe. Don't worry about erasing. You're there. He also says, and I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. Uh, I love this thought and I love this analogy. Uh, there's a long war that we're in. It's between heaven and earth. It's between Satan and God. And we're in it. And we're on one side of the army line, the battle line, or the other. And the thought here, and this is reiterated throughout the Gospels, it's that when King Jesus establishes his kingdom, he's a king in exile right now. He's in heaven. He's been here once. We didn't want him. He went back home. But he's coming back. And the thought here is when he comes back and establishes his kingdom, he's going to gather everybody around. And those who have served him, in the long war, he's going to confess their name. They're going to be called front and center. And he's going to reward them. And he's going to honor them in front of all the hosts of heaven and earth. That's the thought. I'm going to confess his name. He's going to walk with me, dressed in white. And I'm going to honor him before the hosts of heaven and earth. I'm going to confess his name. I couldn't think of a better illustration for this than out of one of my favorite books, and you'll forgive me, I've used this many times, but 
uh, the books that are made popular by the movies, not vice versa. John Ronald Ruel Tolkien's books, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, has this great ending. And frankly, it's, it fits this so perfectly, I can't help but wonder if Tolkien, who was a Christian, wasn't thinking about these scenes as he penned the end of this story. <clears throat> this will take about five minutes. Let me set the story for you. These little insignificant guys from a little insignificant corner of Middle Earth, these two little halflings, these two little hobbits, see, they'd been commissioned, divinely we might say, by a council. They'd been given this sacred trust to take this evil ring of power and go right into the heart of the enemy's land and to destroy it. There's temptations all along the way. There's betrayals. There's failures. There's near misses. But these little guys, they keep going. They keep going. They're committed to keep the trust. And they finally reached into the very heart of the dark Lord's realm, Sauron, to Mount Doom. And through interesting end of the story, which I've spoiled for many people in the past, which I won't do this morning... The ring gets destroyed in the crack of doom. And as it does, this Mount Doom starts bubbling and vomiting, as it were, the lava and the smoke. And so little Sam and little Frodo, they run out from the crack and they're running down the mountain. The only thing is, they're not going to be able to escape. They've been faithful to the end. And they get on this little high piece of ground on the side of the mountain And as they lose consciousness, the mountain around them is being surrounded, being covered by its own molten ash and smoke. And so they lay down together, these little pitiable figures, to die. They've done their thing, and they're going to die. But the cavalry comes through, and their friend Gandalf, on his friend the eagle, Gwaihir, they see them, they've flown in, they know what's happened. And they've come in to rescue them if they can find them. And so the eagle with their great vision looks down and they're on the side of the mountain now being surrounded by the molten ash. They see these two little figures and they swoop down through the smoke and the haze and they pick them up in the claws of the eagles and they rescue them. And when Sam and Frodo waken up, they think they've had a bad dream. And they smell the trees and the grass and they're wondering what in the world happened and where are we? And did we just wake up from a bad dream? And Gandalf is there when they wake up. Gandalf, whom they thought was dead. He tells them, no, you guys, we rescued you. You did the thing and you're back. It's all over. The war is over. We won. And you're heroes. And the king has been taking care of you for several days here. And it's time you're awake. It's time to go meet the king. The king said, Sam, what king and who is he? The king of Gondor and lord of the western land, said Gandalf. He has taken back all his ancient realm. He will ride soon to his crowning, but he's waiting for you. What shall we wear, said Sam? For all he could see was the old tattered clothes that they had journeyed in, lying folded on the ground beside them. The clothes that you wore on your way to Mordor, said Gandalf, even the orc rags that you bore in the black land, Frodo, shall be preserved. No silks and linens, nor any armor or heraldry could be more honorable. But later, I will find some other clothes. 
perhaps. Gandalf leads them to meet the king. <clears throat> and they came to the opening in the wood. They were surprised to see knights in bright mail, tall guards in silver and black standing there, who greeted them with honor and bowed before them. Then one blew a long trumpet, and they went on through the Isle of Trees beside the singing stream. And on the field where they now stood, there was a great host drawn up in ranks and companies glittering in the sun. And as the hobbits approached, swords were unsheathed, and spears were shaken, horns and trumpets sang, and men cried with many voices and in many tongues, Long live the halflings, praise them with great praise. Praise them with great praise, Frodo and Samwise. Praise them, praise them, the ring bearers. Praise them with great praise. And so, the red blood flushing in their faces and their eyes shining with wonder, Frodo and Sam went forward and saw that amidst the clamorous host there were three high seats. And on the highest throne sat a mail-clad man. A great sword was laid across his knees and he wore no helm. As As they drew near, he rose and they knew him. Changed as he was, though, so high and glad of face, kingly, lord of men, dark-haired with eyes of gray, Frodo ran to meet him, and Sam followed close behind. Well, if this isn't the crown of all, he said, Strider, or I'm asleep. Strider, better known as Aragorn. And to Sam's surprise and utter confusion, he bowed, Aragorn, bowed his knee before them, and taking them by the hand, Frodo upon his right and Sam upon his left. He led them to the throne and setting them upon it, he turned to the men and captains who stood by and spoke so that his voice rang over all the host crying, praise them with great praise. At the last, as the sun fell from the noon and the shadows of the trees lengthened, he ended. Praise them with great praise, he said, and knelt. And then Aragorn stood up, and all the host rose. They passed to pavilions, made ready to eat and drink and make merry while the day lasted. Frodo and Sam were led apart and brought to a tent, and there their old raiment was taken off, but folded and set aside with honor, and clean linen was given to them. I mean, this is such a picture of this passage. Their clothing, in their case, soiled, dirty, tattered, and torn, reflected the fact that they had been faithful. They'd kept the trust. They'd finished the course. And their clothing, the state of their clothing, gave testimony to their faithfulness. And rescued from the brink of doom, they stand before the high king, and he himself declares their praises. He confesses them before all the host. And then before the final feast is set, they're led in and they change their old clothing, evidence of their faithfulness, for new white garments. Their new standing before the king to go on into the party. What a great illustration. This is what we're called to. Jesus says, guys, I've given you my own righteousness. Walk worthy. Walk in a way that is appropriate to that high calling. And as you do, you've trusted me for salvation. Keep the faith. Stay alert. Finish your course. Confess my name. Tell others about me. Keep the sacred trust. And when those days of the long war are over, you're going to stand before me. I'm going to confess your name to the ranks of heaven and earth. I'm going to honor you, which is his his desire. And you're going to walk with me in white clothing. It's all appropriate. Let's pray. 
Lord, it is, it is easy to forget. It is easy to get swallowed up in the times we live in and to forget the commission that those who have come to know you through faith are called on to confess your name to those around us and to share that good news that Jesus saves, to confess his name to others, to keep that trust. Lord, forbid that anything should keep us from honoring you. Like these few in Sardis, Father, help us to stay aware and alert. Help us to keep that clothing you've given us clean. Help us to finish the race set before us. And Lord, help us to conduct ourselves in a way on earth appropriate to your calling so that when we stand before you, you can with joy confess our names and reward us just as this great illustration shows. Father, I know that you are gracious and compassionate, full of loving kindness, quick to forgive. Thanks that we serve a great and gracious God. And Father, we with reckless abandon entrust ourselves again to your care and to your keeping. In Jesus' name, amen.